Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Your Number One Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Spencer, your number one fan. Episode topics will vary with the ultimate goal of providing the inspiration, encouragement, and tools for you to create your most authentic, happy life. I want this to be your weekly comfort podcast that also gives you a little kick in the butt to live your life to the fullest and not care what anybody says. Thank you for being here. Now let's get into the good stuff. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Your Number One Fan Podcast. Today, I have Erica Freeman with me. I'm really excited. We are, it's a very weird story. I moved away from Buffalo for a couple of years and I was thankfully able to meet her at a job. I think you hired me. So that was really nice. Um, <laughs> and we worked in like a long-term care assisted living setting. Um, and you offered all kinds of assistance. So one of those things is helping with um, the elderly population navigate PTSD a lot of the time from Mm -hmm. the war and things serious like that. But a lot of the things I want to talk about today have to do with PTSD not being so intertwined with something so quote unquote traumatic like the war, like it doesn't have to be like that. So what we're going to talk about is PTSD, um, how to cope with it, how to support somebody, Um, the different therapies, and basically just whatever you think would be helpful to anybody listening. And um, if you are unsure what PTSD is, you can maybe give a little like explanation of who you are, what you do, and then that type of basis, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, So I am a licensed clinical social worker here in New York State. Um, I currently reside in northern New York. Um, So I'm currently working in a um, group private practice setting. And I see at this point in my career, I see mostly um, teenagers up through whatever age older. Um, I've worked with generally everybody um, from the beginning of my career. I've been a social worker now for 14, going on 15 years. Um, And I love what I do. And I've really, um, in the last, I would say, five to 10 years, we have done so much in um, experience expanding and extending people's knowledge of trauma and the effects and impacts of trauma on our lives um, in general across the board. And also um, how it impacts our relationships and moving forward throughout our life. Um, And so there's there's so much there. There's so much to talk about, um, the science behind it, the neuroscience behind everything, the, um, interconnectedness between our brains and our bodies and, um, how sometimes trauma works in a way that really disconnects those things. And part of the healing process is to be able to help people reconnect and understand, um, the reconnection needed in the brain and in the body for somebody to feel, um, you know, connected in themselves and to be able to live, um, you know, a quality of life that they want to be able to live and enjoy. Um, so I think there's, there's so much, um, there across the board, but it's really interesting and it's really exciting for me. I get really, 
I get really amped up when I get to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so interesting to me. So I'm excited to talk about it. So for anybody who doesn't have any idea, which I think a lot of us have an idea, but maybe the wrong idea of what PTSD is, mm-hmm. um, what is like a general definition? And I know there's so many like nuances to it. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, one, one of the things that I would like to get across is that, you know, we have PTSD in a basic diagnosis, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So I think, you know, I think most people now know that, but the underlying part of this, I think, is that we have all sorts of levels of trauma and levels of things that happen to us that don't necessarily lead to what in the DSM, which is the mental health, you know, diagnostic statistical manual, you know, big fat book that we all use in diagnosing is really basic understanding of trauma in and of itself. So we can see symptoms. So we talk about PTSD in the sense that, um, you know, one of the main ones that people may know is that sometimes there's flashbacks, right? There's hyperarousal, there's hypervigilance, there's um, an overall, you know, fear sometimes of certain situations, not wanting to be maybe depending on the trauma, maybe somebody doesn't want to be in a crowd of people. Somebody doesn't want to be um, in a car, you know, if there was a car accident, somebody, you know, there's so many things that go on with that. Um, We see a lot of anxiety. We see a lot of depression with PTSD because these things are so interconnected. And PTSD is so impactful in people's life in what they normally are doing or want to be able to do. It is very preventative in them being able to just live their life in different ways. Um, So I... I tend to see and do a lot of talking about what is what I call complex PTSD or complex trauma. And so the complex part is a little different in the sense that when we a lot of times have a picture in our mind of PTSD being a, a you know, a one-time horrible thing. So I think a lot of times we talk about um, war and veterans or, um, some of the, you know, more significant types of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, you know, those things happen. Um, big events happening if there's, um, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, um, people's house fires, things like that, that we think of like these significant events that, cause or can cause um, PTSD or um, PTSD symptoms, but maybe they, they aren't necessarily diagnosable if they don't have them at a level that's diagnosable. But one of the things that I like to talk to a lot of my clients about is complex trauma and where complex trauma comes from and what that looks like. And the way in which complex trauma really can impact us from a young age. And so complex trauma has a lot to do with relational trauma. You know, we talk about and understand the significance of 
um, parenting, mothering, fathering, what those relationships are, right? And for us as, as babies, as small children, those attachments are so incredibly significant to us because it is all that we have. And so when we look at the brain, so we go into a little bit of brain science here too, is that there's so much that is developing early on and early on in the sense that from about zero to three, we're almost completely right brained. And so if you think about the brain and the brain hemisphere, so if you kind of, you know, cut in half and we have each side, one side, the right side, and, and so right side being, if you're looking at somebody, it's on the right for you, right? So that makes any sense. That'll be, you know, we don't have to go into all the neuroscience behind it. But when we talk about right side, that has a lot more to do with our emotional side, our nurturing side, our feelings, our limbic system. That is the part of the brain that when we're very little is developing. And so if you think about that, when we think about parenting and having a little bitty baby, the things that we do that are helpful to us, right? We rock, we sway, we bounce, we pat, we burp, we, you know, we sing, we hum, we, um, we do a lot of these things that are very sensory oriented to soothe. Babies regulate off of us as adults And so what happens in that zero to three is all of those things are in development, right? So around the age of three, as many of us know, if you have children or um, have been around children, around that age of three, the cognitive ability really picks up and we start asking a whole bunch of questions. If you can think of three-year-olds, how many times do you get, why, why, what, what's this? who's that, right? All those questions, when they now have the verbal ability to understand the words, they start putting those to use and they want to figure everything out. And so from that point on, you know, the left brain is really what brings that on. We have rationalizing and thinking logical brain. And so the two sides of our brain are very important. And, and this is a, a very much of an overview, okay? So there's a lot more to this, but in that balancing act, we need both sides to be online. And for us, developing, growing up, that makes such a big difference in what we get early on and how we are responded to by the people in our life. So we go down this path because complex trauma has so much to do with that. So it has so much to do with the relational piece of how we are raised, who's around, the things that we feel, the things that we pick up on, and really the basis of who's picking up on our needs. The parents, grandparents, guardians, who's around to pay attention to as we're little, what are our needs, right? And as we grow up, how are those needs met? And so there's so many different things that can happen throughout that. And this isn't a matter of like, 
you know, one bad thing happens and we're, we're all like, it's all done. It's all over, you know, no hope. That's not the case. We actually know that the brain, um, the brain continues to grow and change in different ways throughout our life. Our neural pathways continue to um, change and connect and we can do all of that with the right tools. Um, So complex trauma can be a lot of things, but what is most, I think, um, to think about is as you're growing up or as an adult now, the things that have impacted you throughout your life. And if you think back on some of the things that have happened and have some insight into whether things still bother you or um, there are issues in relationships that you have with others or it prevents you from doing things that you want to be able to do, maybe, you know, going back to school or being more successful in your job or working up um, the ladder to be, um, you know, fulfilling a dream or something like that. So um, in that way, I talk to people a lot about negative beliefs about themselves, right? And so if we go down the path of, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure. Um, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. Um, I, one of the very, very core ones that is a pretty significant one and is one where, um, people should be in treatment for in some capacity, I would say is if there's really an underlying feeling of I shouldn't exist because that takes us down a path where we really get serious about talking about suicidal ideation. Right. And so, and that's one that we don't want anybody to travel and we don't want anybody to travel alone and not feel supported. But sometimes what happens is very early on, if there are things that happen in our life and we may not have a memory where we can actually recall these things. Um, And so those those feelings need a way to be worked on, to be dealt with, healed, managed, you know, um, finding a place to be able to talk with a therapist. And it doesn't always have to be a therapist either. I am a therapist, so I love therapy, but there's lots of other avenues and ways that people can also get help too. Um, so, I'm doing a lot of talking, but so are there any specific questions that you have or thoughts that you, yeah. um, because if you let me ramble, I'll ramble. For- <laughs> no, I, I can listen to this like all day too. Um, I actually just talked to, uh, she's a, um, doctoral candidate of psychology. So we were talking about a lot of things like this, like negative thoughts and your neural pathways and things. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that just came up for me is, so if two people were both in a house fire, one person can come out of that and seemingly be okay, quote unquote, okay. And another person can have like a severe PTSD type response. Like what is, how does that work? So I'll start by saying we're very complex. Okay. So as humans, as animals, we, we have a complexity to us that, um, that, you know, 
basically no other animal species that we know of on this planet has the brain that we have, right? So there's lots of different things that happen. And so sometimes this can be going to just temperament and that like your personality, some of the genetics that we have and in the basics of who we are that are not necessarily things that can be um, changed by nurturing in that sense. You know, if we talk about that nature versus nurture, we're a combination of those two things. So we have genetics and DNA and all the things that we are essentially given, right, at birth. (laughs) And then the other side of, you know, as we are developing the different things that happen to us, the experiences that happen, the relationships that are gained and built and um, how those things. And so even, even if you think about twins, identical twins, there are still differences in experiences and how they relate their personalities and things like that. Right. So there's not necessarily like one specific thing that is going to cause somebody to have um, PTSD versus somebody not given those situations. But some of how we think about those things, if we have a tendency to ruminate, if we, de- if we have a tendency to ruminate on the negative and those things become bigger and bigger, those things can sometimes develop into a PTSD if we don't have anybody where we didn't talk about it, we didn't get debriefed, we didn't have anybody really meeting our needs, maybe either in the moment or right after, very soon after. Um, you know, so if you think about military and our first responders and things, we talk about how to debrief and how they should be debriefed. Now, I won't go down that path. I think there's still a lot of improvement needed there. But debriefing is a part of it. So it allows our body to actually process some of the things that have happened. Usually, if we process them sooner rather than later, we're helping to prevent a long-term effect. Our body has a normal response in that we, you know, our neural pathways, our nervous system has what we essentially need for survival, right? So our survival mode and our survival responses are meant to react very quickly in situations like this, where we, um, if something like a house fire or we're being chased by a bear in the woods or something like that, right? We're meant to respond very quickly without a lot of thought process, without a lot of rationalizing, our survival mode responses kick in, which is good, which is what we want. But what we also want is for them shortly after to be able to go back to a baseline normal for us. We don't want to stay in that um, heightened response for a long period of time. Now, in saying this, I'm going to revert back to talking about the complex trauma. When we talk about complex trauma, part of that process is if we are going through something in childhood 
adolescence or in a way where we cannot get away from it. So if you think about being in a household that may be neglectful, there is a dichotomy in the situation that happens throughout childhood and adolescence that we don't have control over. We don't have the power in situations as children to get ourselves out of it. So if there are things going on in a home setting where the needs are not being met or there's abuse happening in some way, um, it, it can be a whole slew of things, right? But the essential issue in this is that you have a child that is stuck in a place where they're dependent on the parents or guardians, the adults in their life for shelter, for food, for clothes, for water, for resources, for medical care, all of these things, right? So they're essentially in need of those things consistently. And that's just the basics, right? We're not even getting into necessarily emotional stuff. But what happens is that in that they're dependent, but also this is the same place that is causing harm or pain or not getting their needs met. And it creates this dichotomy of the things that I do or trying to fix these things and make them better don't work, right? And so there's also beliefs then that develop in in the like, I don't matter. I, you know, the things that I do don't work. So it becomes a, I'm helpless. It doesn't matter what I do. Um, So that connecting factor in that, you know, is that we all go through stuff, you know, is, is just normal humans, normal things, things happen, things that are out of our control, accidents happen, right? So we all go through things, but part of going through those is also the recovery in that and the recovery in relationships, you know? And so part of that is if you have relationships with, um, with, with parents who maybe don't ever apologize or don't ever come to talk through some things or have, you know, their own stuff going on. Because a lot of times we see generational things happening that if things happened for them, a lot of times it plays out in their own relationships, in their own parenting, um, which is sometimes, you know, difficult in nature because as much as I think we don't want to, I think a lot of, a lot of us have the, if those things happen to us that we didn't like, we don't want to do them to others. Unfortunately, a lot of times that still tends to happen. Um, and we see the generational, um, pattern continue in a lot of ways. So, um, so I don't even know if I answered your question because I think I just got off topic and went back to my life. No, I think, (laughs) no, I think that really makes sense. So if somebody goes through the same thing, and maybe one person walks away from it with PTSD or PCSD symptoms. It all really goes back to that, like from a young age, how they were treated, how they acted, what they went through. And it's just very complex, I guess. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So I kind of like to, I never heard about this debrief type situation. So it's almost like, like, I feel like there's definitely a scientific aspect to it, obviously, and like your brain and how that works. But also, I feel like if you don't debrief from a situation, you might just be able to talk yourself out of the severity of it or like does that make sense I feel like there's a lot of reasons why that's important and I can just see if somebody went through a situation and they were like okay nobody like I'm still in this fight or flight mode and Mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't that bad like you know so what other reasons would you do that type of debrief and who who qualifies as a person to do that like that's not necessarily therapy right like that makes sense. You, there could be therapists that debrief, but a lot of times we have crisis response teams. Um, you know, so we have Red Cross people all over the world, right? So majority of them, if there's a mental health aspect that they're responsible for, they're going to be trained in crisis management and responding to crisis situations. And basically, we know that <clears throat> right you know, when things happen, the quicker a, um, the quicker a recovery is able to be done in a situation where people are able to recoup and people are able to get back to, um, somebody that is emotionally supportive. So if we talk about children in the aspect of going through something, the quicker that we are able to get them to somebody that they are emotionally connected to for safety, the better they are going to do. And so a lot of that is relational in the sense that we feel better when we have somebody that we can depend on or that we know is safe, right? They love us, they care about us. And so there's part of that in the like, thinking about debriefing, it's not always necessarily like what this random person who's the crisis person is doing. It It is their knowledge of we need to get this person to a safe place. We need to get this person back connected with somebody. Some of the debriefing when you think about military and our first responders is them being able to share in the experience and process these things together and allow for, you know, if something terrible really just happened, if somebody was lost in in like a, a bombing or an accident or something that happened, like for them to be able to come together, because part of this is grief, part of this is mourning, part of this is the reality that somebody on their team didn't make it, but they did, right? And so there's, so sometimes we talk about survivor's guilt, right? There's there's so much complexity in these things that can occur, but the quicker we respond to them and the more response and the more needs that are being met early on, the better the long-term benefits are. And we see less um, impact long-term in that so that they are able to heal and process those things. One thing I'll I'll um, touch on is that when I first started talking about the brain and the body is in the interconnectedness of that is that one of the things that we are now much more aware of is that 
being aware of things cognitively and knowing them is not the same as being able to recover from them in the sense of our body. So our body experiences things with us cognitively, but also differently from us. And so it's one of those pieces that being able to connect that and allow the body to process those things as well. Um, one of the things I'm, um, I've been reading a book recently, and I actually love how the author talks about memory and how we tend to talk about memory only in one sense, and it's not actually the full um, the full understanding of actual memory. So when we talk about memory, we talk about it in the sense that like we remember and we recall things, right? Well, that's our explicit memory. So our explicit memory are things that we can think back and we're like, oh yes, I remember that when I was, you know, seven years old and I fell flat on my face and broke my tooth. I remember that. True story. Um, (laughs) but Our implicit memory is things that have happened to us and to our body, to our brain, but that we don't necessarily remember or can recall. So there's two things kind of going on. And so when people come in for therapy, when people come in and, you know, we're talking a lot about trauma today, but I think I have seen a... I don't even know how many people I've seen hundreds of people come into my office and say, I'm sad or I'm depressed and I don't know why, or I'm anxious all the time and I don't know why. Right. So there's a lot connected to that. But when we go to this place of the things that have happened to us impact us and if we can't remember them, but they've happened, there's somewhere in this implicit memory, right? So the implicit memory and the explicit memory really make up our whole memory. But a lot of times we are only talking in the sense of explicit. And that's one of those things that I think a lot of people don't um, don't realize and don't connect with is that there's a lot of things that happen to us throughout our lives that we don't necessarily remember just in the normal sense of things. As we get older, if you think back, like, you know, what age do you really remember things at? A lot of times, the older we get, the more difficult it is for us to really remember things any younger than like our kindergarten years, you know, usually around that five, sometimes into the pre-kindergarten, the four, you know, but we don't have a lot of memory super early on. Part of that is brain development and the nonverbal memory that we have, which tends to be much more implicit because brain-wise, cognitively, we're not necessarily developed in that way. So that's that's that part that sometimes there are things that have happened where people can say, you know, at this point in my life, I have a great life. I, you know, I, I love my family. I like my job. I'm doing all these things and I am still struggling in some way. I'm still 
maybe very sad or I'm just really numb or I just don't feel like I'm really living. And, and so there's a lot to that. And I'm not saying that it's simple, but there can be a connection to implicit memory that is not necessarily something that we are able to recall. And so that kind of plays into how, Mm -hmm. you know, going about and, and, and being able to get the right help. Mm -hmm. It's not that there's no help out there. It's being able to get the right help where um, you're going to be able to work on the healing process that you need to. Yeah. It's, there's a book that I want to read too. I think it's called the body keeps score. Yes. Yeah. Is that kind of about that? Like where, Mm -hmm. yeah, your trauma and your body and all of that is, so is it, does it make sense or is this kind of the same idea as like a suppressed memory? It can be. Yes. Um, Yes. (laughs) That that is really real. Um, People, people definitely um, have suppressed memories um, things that have been repressed. And, you know, and so in that capacity, what I would say to that is as humans, as our body, as our brain is so complex, it does things for us that we don't know that it's doing in order to protect us, in order order for us to survive, in order for us to keep going. And so in those moments, in those times, it's doing what it needs to in order to help us. But the long-term effect from that can sometimes be that we don't actually know what has happened. And, and we have a hard time kind of connecting with why we feel the way we feel or what is really going on. And so in those in those times, I, I work with people on the sense of really trying to have an open curiosity about themselves, about their bodies, um, trying not to be judgmental, really going in with a non-judgmental look at like, what are these things? What's going on? Am I listening to the things that I need to listen to with my own body? Um there's some dissociative factors too when we talk about trauma, PTSD, um, part of complex trauma we usually see is a higher level of dissociative um, symptoms. And in that, it has a lot to do with what I was talking about earlier with if you are stuck in something and you cannot get out, our mind, our brain we do what we need to in order to survive it. And so sometimes that means that the brain, the body is going to go offline. We're going to go somewhere else. (laughs) We're going to find somewhere else where we can survive. So sometimes children, you know, can talk about, you know, these really extravagant imaginary made up things that like, this is where I went. And, and even, you know, And this is not to downplay, there is a normal level of imaginary play that is very normal and it's very good for kids um, to be able to play and socialize and do all of those things. But if you are stuck in a situation that you can't get out of, um, it could be something 
and I'm just throwing out examples here of a home where there's drug and alcohol abuse, right? Or if there's one parent who consistently comes home, um, you know, having been out all day drinking and come and and this routine happens quite often and and you have a kid that tries to do what they can to make it better but it doesn't really change anything and so when we talk about sometimes that feeling of helplessness and that feeling of like needing to get away needing to escape and and find you know and so that's where sometimes our brain just does what it needs to in order to survive those things. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring up like the dissociating thing. It's unfortunately, I think a new word that people say a lot, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I dissociated at whatever. And it kind of is frustrating. I always get frustrated when people use those like words that like OCD or like words like that, Mm -hmm. just kind of willy nilly. But dissociating I noticed is one of those (laughs) and and so what people need to understand too is that we have a normal level of dissociation there's a normal level you know and I say normal but there's there really is a normal level of dissociation in the sense that I think that we can all talk about the fact that at some point or another if you're somebody who drives and your routine driving home and you get home in your driveway or wherever and you're like how did I just get here right like because we go into kind of autopilot at times and our brain knows, our body knows we're still with it. We're still functioning, but we were also somewhere else. We were thinking about something else. We, you know, there's something else on our mind that had our attention, but because of that, you know, routine effect, we were able to really do two things at once. Um, part of building up an awareness of this is really building the awareness of your body and having the, um, interoception of the body. So being able to connect, but then also having the awareness that I can be thinking all these things. I can be doing all these things right now and I can still observe myself. And as humans, we're really the only animal that has the ability to do dual attention. And so that is one of those things that can really work to our benefit when we learn how to use it and we learn how to kind of hone in on it and use it as a skill. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense too. Yeah. I guess I, I need to give some people a break about it, but it, it does irritate me though when people say it is like, you know, but um, what I was going to also ask, like, I feel like we're getting really close to talking about the EMDR, but I yeah. want to kind of um, also talk about the differences in trauma and how like, I, I, I guess just hearing from you the explanation of what could qualify as a trauma and like that bit little Mm -hmm. t big t type thing because Mm -hmm. I almost feel like some people might be experiencing PTSD but they don't feel so much anxious or so much depressed or so much whatever but it's that and maybe that they don't realize they went through something that could be causing that if that makes sense yeah absolutely and I you know and one thing I will speak a little bit to is that we go through so much that has connection to relational trauma. 
And there's probably a lot more relational trauma than we realize and that we give credit to. Because if you think about it, as as humans, as babies, toddlers, children, adolescents, so much of what we do is connection and socialization, right? We're not meant to be completely alone in this world. As humans, as human babies, we are completely dependent on someone else for survival, right? So we're not a species that is meant to be like (laughs) born and left. That's not us. So when we think about this, like the relational trauma, a lot of times there is much more connectedness to those things once something else has happened. So if you think about somebody coming in for PTSD um, that had a significant one-time event, And this one-time event is frustrating for them because they're like, I just, like, this happened. I know that it happened. I know that I'm fine, but all of these things keep happening, right? A lot of times we see that there is a connection to the things that have happened in the past. And part of that is because, um, what's the saying Things that fire together, wire together. <laughs> so so if you think about our neural pathways, and I sometimes paint the picture of like, think about a cobweb, right? And if anybody has seen, you know, I think probably a lot of us have seen different things on computer generated things of the brain where it's like, you see like the zinging and then the lights up, right? And so, so if you picture this, intertwined network of just all these little wires, essentially, right? That is so much of our brain that things are crossing paths all the time. So when things happen, though, that maybe later on in life as an adult, they happen, and you're very aware of that, but there are still symptoms that are connecting that you're like, I don't understand. Like, I know I'm okay. I know I'm fine. I know that I'm not there. I'm safe. Whatever the situation is, is that there are triggering effects sometimes with the brain that happens, right? And so these triggering effects of the, whatever happened at this point lights up and now all of those other lines that wired together also lit up. So that firing just spread. And so in that, that's where that connection of the different things that have happened to us throughout our life start to impact and connect with us more currently. Um, You know, so in the present moment, even though those things are in the past, the present is here, but those things are still impacting us. And a lot of, and you know, a lot of that has to do with some of the wiring of things that, oh, now things are firing and it's like, oh, what's going on? Or the body's remembering 
if there was a triggering effect, now it's kind of like awoken some of that to go, something happened, something reconnected, right? And so, um, what was your question more specifically? Because I think I just did a roundabout. That actually, um, that's, I feel like explains a lot of it, but I'm trying to think of how I asked a couple questions. Um, what can qualify as trauma, I guess. And then like what you were saying as far as like the connections. So you're mm-hmm. saying that something happened, whether it be big or small, if mm-hmm. somebody does have a big reaction to a small quote unquote, nobody can see me doing this, but um, yeah. trauma, like, does that necessarily mean they had something that it's connecting to in the past that was also a trauma or like, you know, <laughs> definitely could. It's definitely mm-hmm. good. And that's um, the irony and the complexity in the situation is that it is sometimes tough to know for sure. Um, and so sometimes that depends on people being in, in a space where they are willing to go kind of curiously feeling those things out for themselves. Right. And, um, and being able to look, sometimes people are not ready. Sometimes people are just really feel never ready in that sense. Um, the trauma piece. So when you ask like what would or could qualify as a trauma, I think, you know, so we have, so I'm going to answer this in two ways. We have some very definitive trauma definitions that are out there. What I would tell you is that if something impacted you in a physiological way, in a mental way, in a spiritual way, um, in a a physical way, right? So your system responds to something and there is something that sticks around for an extended period of time that can create the long-term response, PTSD, complex PTSD, traumatic responses that we have. So I personally don't feel that there is one major specific definition of what those traumas could be that I can't definitively tell you like this could be this is and this is right because I think for an individual basis depending on the situation depending on who we are depending on how quickly resources or safety is available depending on all of these factors can be something that creates or doesn't create a long-lasting trauma window of sorts, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that all of these things are going to create a symptomology where we're actually diagnosing PTSD. Um, And that's, and I I guess I come back to that in a little bit, where people um, who have high anxiety there may be something connected that 
something happened somewhere along the way. And I also want to give a little bit of credit to there are sometimes generational things that happen. And some of this is kind of passed down biologically. Some of it is passed down in modeling behavior too. So if somebody has high anxiety, that there maybe is a hypervigilance, um, hyper um, awareness of things, noticing different things, that could be a trauma response, but you're not necessarily fulfilling all of the PTSD qualifications to get that diagnosis, right? Um, But it doesn't mean that you can't work on that and you can't improve that. When we go into the brain, um, the neurobiology of things, we know that a lot of our responses are in our midbrain that have a lot to do with our survival mode and our limbic system um, and the things that respond very quickly to if we are unsafe or if something is happening. Um, and so sometimes what can happen is if there's a lot that happens and overwhelms the system, that the system has difficulty in re, like reacclimating and rebalancing itself. Um, so to be able to do that in different ways, a lot of times the best way to do that is through the body. Um, it's not because our brain, so if we think about this being our real cognitive, our, our cortex is our, is our most cognitive area, is that when we go back into the mid parts of the brain, that's our more felt experience and our, you know, our um, sensory experiences that are coming. And those things all come from what we're taking in going up to the midbrain first. So when we talk about trauma and our reactions, we can have trauma responses that seemingly come out of nowhere. And we go, what was that? It made no sense. Well, The reason being is that so much of that is sensory oriented and that goes right into the mid part of the brain that is really our survival mode, our limbic system, our sensory stuff that responds immediately before we even know what's going on. So that happens first and then we kind of catch up. And so sometimes people don't understand that too, in the sense that like, well, why can't I prevent these things if I know, right? And it's just not how our brain is set up because we don't want to have to think about things if we have to jump out of the way of a bus hitting us, right? So we want to like respond immediately as fast as possible in order to survive that. We don't want to sit there and have a debate that, oh, the bus is coming at me. Should I move left? Should I move right? I don't know if I would be able to jump high enough. We don't want to do that because that is not good for our survival. We will not make it. (laughs) So in that sense, our sensory stuff 
is taken in and very quickly is in our midbrain, but it takes a little bit to get to our cognitive part of the brain where we do a lot of the thinking. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is so complicated, honestly. <laughs> so it's like, it's hard to even like ask one question because it just goes to 10 different directions. I feel like it's hard to even answer anything, but for so like it is a good thing that we have that fight or flight instinct and all of that but then it also can obviously hinder our ability to feel these things um so i guess this kind of leads to my next question of like can you be cured of these things and then how does emdr come into play yeah so i think there is definitely hope and I want people to have hope because I think hope is so important that we are so amazing as humans. Our brains are so amazing. We can do so many things. Um, and that, um, the potential to heal is, is really almost always there. And I'm going to say almost because, in the sense of if there is actual physical damage where if we talk about TBIs and things like that, that where there's actual physical damage, sometimes those things cannot be repaired. And depending on where that is in the brain, those are not able to fix themselves or regenerate. And and sometimes there really is just too much damage in that sense. Now, if there's no physical damage done, what I think it's, you know, it's really important to have that hope and really be able to have a sense that we can get better, we can heal, we can recover, we can improve our quality of life and have um, meaningful relationships, meaningful experiences with ourselves, with others, and being able to share in that. So I definitely want to have um, hope. Um, As I start to talk about EMDR, I think one, um, one story I would like to share is actually my very first EMDR client. And so I'll, I'll talk a little bit more and I'll get into the explanation of EMDR a little bit, but one of the things that um, I had done with a client and my very first client was a, I think, I want to say she was 78 at the time. And so it was really scary for her and she had been in therapy um, in and out of therapy for probably 30 plus years and, um, basically felt like there was really not a whole lot that anybody was going to do for her, um, that was going to make any real impact. And so, um, you know, the first thing I'll th- say about therapy is therapy is so much about the relationship with your therapist. Um, as a therapist, I think that it is the number one thing that we have to be um, aware of and clued in on because if we don't build the relationship, then it's very hard for people to share and trust and 
you know, really be able to get into some of the hardest stuff that they need to, right? So with that being said, um, I had developed the relationship with her and I had told her, I just learned this new technique and I want to try it. (laughs) And she was like, okay, Erica, (laughs) I'm going to trust you on this one. And I said, all right, we got this. Um, And so in the EMDR process, part of what um, is done, but is also, I, I don't want people to be scared away from this, but part of the process is thinking about some of the most difficult parts of a trauma. If you have the recall, if you have the recollection, the things that are most impactful or still bothersome to you, the most distressing, right? And so in this process, you ask people to focus on that. And while I was starting this session with her, with her focusing on the worst part of her trauma, um, which I will, I will share was a sexual trauma at a young age. Um, and she was like, Erica, I'm on a 10, like 10 meaning distress level, all time high. What are you going to (laughs) do? And I was like, oh gosh, fingers crossed this works. (laughs) And in my amazement and in hers, she went from a 10 to a one in one session. Now, I am not saying that that is going to happen for everyone. It does not. I have now many years of experience doing EMDR. That does not happen for everyone. But what I will say is that session alone changed so much for this client. And she was just amazed that how she felt at the beginning of the session. And I only did... I would tell you, I don't think I was there for more than 75 minutes. It was basically a, you know, an hour, hour 15. (laughs) And, um, and so it was just amazing to see. And I think at that point, I really truly was like, EMDR is amazing. More people need to know about it. More people need to be trained in this. We need to do more than we are. Um, so EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I have been using this in my practice now, um, for about five years. And so I had almost 10 years of being a therapist without being EMDR trained. And in that way, I'm actually thankful in the sense that as a therapist, I went through, I did a lot of other things throughout my practice in the first 10 years before learning EMDR. I now love EMDR and I use it quite a bit. Um, But I also can see the difference and I can see the difference in my own practice with having worked with many people for many years without EMDR 
and now being able to work with people with EMDR and having the training, having the knowledge and really being able to um, work with them in, in honestly, I think most of the time speed up the recovery by three times, five times. I don't even know. Couldn't even tell you. Um, but when people really invest and decide that they are going to do EMDR, I really think it is so beneficial. So we talked a little bit earlier about connecting with negative thoughts that have happened throughout. And so this doesn't necessarily have to be um, long-term complex trauma. And it's it can be a one-time thing. But what I would say about EMDR is that it is very individualized, but very structured. And so EMDR in and of itself, when you know we talk about the specifics of EMDR, there's eight phases of treatment. And essentially, if you are going to go through EMDR treatment, you are going to, and your therapist is going to walk you through having all eight phases of that treatment. So it starts with history taking and getting to know somebody just as if any other therapy session would and should, um, to really get the history and, you know, start working on forming a connection and, and really understanding what, what's going on in different ways. And then moving into resourcing, which is learning different grounding techniques. Um, Some of the basics that I teach and I think many therapists teach are the butterfly hug, calm space, things like that, that are just very um, instrumental in being able to help yourself ground and know that you have those skills in order to be able to help yourself later on. So we do resourcing early on because if people are coming in with things that tend to upset them or really increase their response to something as in like a survival response. So we see sometimes their anxiety shoots, their nervous system kind of goes, you know, a little wonky. We want them to have the skills that they need in order to settle that down, balance, and reground themselves. So in that way, we don't just jump into what's the trauma? (laughs) There's a little bit of a building process. And I always tell people in my therapy sessions, you can tell me as much or as little as you are able to, and you feel comfortable to, especially early on. Um, because I don't want you to leave the office feeling worse and, um, and having symptoms or, things that are going to impact you for the rest of the day or the rest of the week, right? So I want you to leave feeling okay and definitely not worse than when you showed up, right? Um, so as we, you know, move in EMDR, what I will say about EMDR and the way that I 
explain it. And this is my own personal analogy. Okay. (laughs) And I think that there's probably, there's probably a gazillion EMDR therapists out there that we all come up with like our own little ways of like explaining things to people and the ways that it makes sense to us. And also for everybody's knowledge, anybody who is completely EMDR trained also had to go through EMDR themselves. Um, So it is an experiential training. Um, We, you know, we learn in the sense that we are, we are taught things and we know the um, educational and the biology and the information. And then we watch usually is you watch somebody do the different parts and then you do them and you do them in a way as a trainer and you also do them as a client. And so that process for anybody, you know, thinking about EMDR is that, you know, we as the therapist also have some Um, experience ourselves and actually going through the process, which I think is very useful. Um, So thinking about, this is my own way of explaining it. So if you, if you take your hands and if you think about the things that have happened in your life that are still impacting you, okay. And it's all right here, right? So in this way, if I do this, and I cover my face, it is very hard for me to see and function and know what's going on, right? This is right here. It's it's always right here. And so the best way for me to explain how EMDR works and functions is that with this sitting right here, it's very emotionally draining and exhausting, right? We work so hard to be functional around all of it that when we get into processing, what starts to happen is this. We start to pull these things that are there in our face away, right? And so if I could reach up, you know, to the corner of my ceiling or whatever, we can stretch that out and now I can look and I can see these things. They're up here still. I didn't change them. We didn't erase them. We didn't destroy them. They're still there, but they're there in a way that is not so emotionally draining, distressing, exhausting. We look at them and we can say, oh yeah, I remember, I see it, it's still there. I can pull it in if I want to, but it's not controlling me. It's not consuming me anymore. And so the thing with this is that we can do this with almost everything, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a big, huge trauma that happened. It can be something that was a little, little thing that we remember happening when we were seven years old in second grade. And this memory still haunts us for whatever reason. And it still impacts the way that we feel about ourselves in some reason, you know, or for some reason. And we can go back 
you know, work on that memory, work on picturing those things, doing different bilateral stimulation. Eye movement is the most researched out there for EMDR, but there are also other mechanisms and ways of doing that. Um, some of the mainstream, um, I don't know if anybody out there is a Grey's Anatomy watcher. I watched Grey's Anatomy for a long time. I was going to bring that up, Joe. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's what um, I was going to bring up. And, actually, and so I'll tell you, like, Grey's Anatomy did a pretty good job with that. Like, they yeah. really did. It was, it, it was with, with what they were using and the actual, like, process of everything – they did a pretty good remake of what you might actually see in a therapist's office. Um, I generally still do old school hand movements and I have most of my people doing eye movements, watching my fingers. For me personally, as a therapist, I feel more connected and I feel like I can read their body language and I am more attuned to where they are and what's going on. Um, but we also have things out there. Um, I have a specific, I don't know exactly. I have a specific brand that's called Theratappers, which are, they're just little, um, little oval things that two of them, and I call them buzzies for kids. They, they just vibrate back and forth. It's another form of bilateral stimulation. And um, we do different things with tapping. Um, you, We also have audio. So different things that will do tones back and forth in the ears. Um, or there's other, there's, there's actually quite a few things out there, um, you know, mechanisms and different things that are being used and tried out. Um, What thoughts or questions do you have? (laughs) Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't, who obviously can't see um, and doesn't know what we're talking about with Grey's Anatomy, it's like a, like a horizontal stick with lights that go down. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. A light bar that will have different and a lot of them have different colored lights that will go from one side to another. So you're essentially kind of watching a running light back and forth. And then, okay. So, I mean, this is very complicated as well. So I'm just, um, I'm trying to see how I could, so if somebody wanted to um, go to therapy, when how would they qualify to use this? Like, is it just PTSD or is it something else that like a therapist would use it for? I use it for all sorts of things. And I think okay. that most EMDR therapists would tell you that they use it for all sorts of things too, that it does not need to be used with somebody who just specifically has a PTSD diagnosis. It is very commonly used with PTSD, um, but I use it for anxiety. I use it for depression. I use it for, I mean, almost anything okay so you know how would somebody know that they're like that they should try it um I would say if you're open to it and you think that you have stuff that is still bothering you whether it's something that happened a long time ago or you know more recently or there was a significant thing that happened you know a traumatic experience um 
really, if you've also tried other therapies that have not worked, um, I would suggest trying EMDR. Um, I've seen a bunch of people in my practice that have been in therapy for different reasons, um, you know, multiple time lengths. And we, you know, and I say, well, let's do something different. Let's do something that is um, going to help connect um, some different things. Um, I will explain a little bit because this seems very weird, right? When you first hear about EMDR, you think that is crazy. And I will also confirm that when I even went to go get EMDR trained, I was like, oh, wow, this is, uh -huh, this is interesting. And what I want people to understand is that if we go to a place of natural healing, right? We know, and if you are familiar with sleep phases, okay? So let's talk about REM sleep. REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement. So when we are in REM sleep, we are in our dream state of sleep. And at that point, when we're in that state, our eyes are darting from corner to corner, back and forth, while we are sleeping, while we are dreaming. This process is our brain's natural way of organizing information and putting it away, putting it in places where it's going to be useful, where we can recall, where it's needed. And in that organization, the eyes bouncing back and forth is our natural way of doing this. So EMDR really was founded um, in a very natural sense where um, Dr. Shapiro, who was the founder of this, was noticing that when she moved her eyes back and forth, thinking about something distressing that had happened, she felt better. So this is a very, you know, when we talk about natural and natural healing, it really doesn't get a whole lot more natural than this. This is a way for the body to really be able to heal and help itself. Um, now, I'm not recommending that people just go out and start darting their eyes back and forth, okay? So let's understand that because I think that you want to you want to learn and you want to be informed and you want to have somebody who has been trained help you along this journey. Okay. So is it a natural way of helping ourselves and healing? Yes. Should we just do it kind of willy nilly all on our own and not really understand? No, I would not recommend that. I feel like you might have to come on in another episode to talk about EMDR like specifically because I wanted to before we like wrap up that I wanted to ask your recommendations for anybody interested in what you do like how you became mm -hmm. a therapist and everything um so if we 
do you want me to go to the basics of how I became a therapist or um, are you talking more EMDR? Uh, probably just a therapist. Yeah. Like schooling and stuff. Okay. So I am a licensed clinical social worker. And so for the state of New York, that meant that um, you have to get your master's degree. And so that's your MSW um, in, you know, a school that's like qualified and all of that good stuff. And so when you come out with your MSW of grad school, which usually um, for most of us, I would say is six years. Some people, if they go the faster route where they do BSW to MSW, um, they can cut down a semester or two. So sometimes it's a little closer to five years of schooling. Um, But you get out with your MSW and essentially have to license, which then makes you an LMSW. And in New York State at this point, you still have to have three years of clinical experience under supervised, um, you know, supervision with either clinical social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, um, who else? Sometimes, I don't know. I want to say those, those are the main three. We'll just keep it safe for that. So you have to have three years where you get enough, um, client contact, which last I knew, I believe is over 2,400 hours, somewhere around there. It's over 2000, I think. Um, and then you also have to have over a hundred, I can't remember exactly over a hundred hours though of supervision. Um, And then once you have that, you're able to go test for your clinical license, which then um, people become LCSWs in the state of New York. So that is your licensed clinical social worker. And what has just recently changed, um, my initials are LCSW-R. So in New York State, the R was really... um, three more years of experience, clinically more supervision, um, but basically sending all of that paperwork into the state for them to grant you what we call the R privilege. So the R privilege was really for insurance um, payment and claims to be able to bill and do all of that stuff. Recently, just the beginning of this year, they have um, rescinded the R for New York State right now, um, essentially just making it so that once you get your LCSW, there is not necessarily anything else to be able to do in that aspect. Um, But as far as like therapists too, there's also mental health counselors. So you can go and be a licensed mental health counselor. Um, Those are master's level programs. And um, marriage and family therapists, those are master's level programs. So people get licensed marriage, family therapists. Um, Psychologists, um, usually to be a clinical psychologist, um, working whether privately or with, with an agency clinically, um, are usually, um, doctorate programs. Um, so those are, those are some of the, the basics of. Yeah. Yeah. That's, this is all super interesting. So I'm sure at least somebody would be interested to maybe do what you do. Um, cool. And then is there any like resources that I can just pass along for people? I know we before we started recording, you mentioned a book. So any like yeah. books or whatever else that you read, yeah. listen to? Um, 
there's one book that I recommend a lot to, and it's actually a newer book. It is called What Happened to You, and it's by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. Um, if you like to listen to books, I also recommend that's a good listen because they have some dialogue back and forth, so it makes it a, it makes it an interesting listen. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm currently reading Mindsight, which is also a really good book. Um, if people are just um, introducing themselves to different things, um, the Body Keeps the Score is also a good one. But I will say that that one is heavier at different times. Um and if you were going to do one versus the other to start with, if you've never read anything, I would start with what happened to you. And then I would go into the body keeps the score and mindsight or, you know, whatever, if, if some of these things really interest okay. people. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's a good thing to mention too. Cause I know this really is pretty heavy, especially if you have you know, the history of it. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so thankful that you came on and talked about this stuff. I know that my questions are kind of general and vague and hard to answer, but I hope <laughs> that I hope that you like talking about it because I really like listening. Absolutely. I love um, sharing. I think, I think anybody having more of an understanding about this is so helpful um, because not only I think is it helpful for us individually, it helps us to make sense of our own stuff, maybe our own suffering, but Mm -hmm. it helps us to make sense and be able to heal in different ways when we make sense of things too. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I mean, anytime if you ever want me to come back with different topics or whatever, I'd love to. Um, yeah, that sounds great. So- I, I really would like to talk about more of these things in depth. Um, so if anybody has any questions who's listening to, let me know and I can direct them and maybe we can make an episode of just questions. Um, but yeah, thank you for coming and thank you everybody for listening. Um, I'll have all of the resources, the things that we talked about and all of that good stuff in the show notes and on social media. So I'll catch you in the next one.